When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Changing your life one story at a time. This is the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast with Editor-in-Chief Amy Newmark. Hey everyone, it's Amy Newmark with your Chicken Soup for the Soul. And today we have a special guest who I've admired ever since I met him for breakfast in Los Angeles four years ago. I'm still trying to get him to do a Chicken Soup for the Soul book with us. But in the meantime, he keeps publishing one bestseller after another without me. And at the same time, he is serving as the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, which serves approximately 2,700 families at three campuses. Newsweek magazine twice named him one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America, but his reach extends way outside his community. His five books explore the transformative nature of suffering and grief how to live a prosperous life without losing your soul, and in his newest book, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Steve started his very long educational journey with a degree in writing from Northwestern, and then he received a master's degree and his rabbinical ordination from Hebrew Union College, and he is most proud of his biggest achievement, his happy family, his wife and his son and daughter, so, Steve, welcome to the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Amy. You know I'm a big fan of yours. The day will come when we'll do a book together. Don't worry. Okay, that's good. And <laughs> I have to tell everybody who's listening, we just discovered that Max, our sound engineer, was actually one of Steve's constituents. Is that what you call it? Or is that a politician thing, a constituent? We call them congregants or temple members, but in Max's case, we just call him a, a Menchie Jewish guy. Okay, all right. Well, that he is. Well, Steve, thank you so much for contributing to the 30th anniversary edition of the original Chicken Soup for the Soul. You know, my objective was to revise the book and update it with stories from today's thought leaders. And your story was absolutely fabulous. It's about mourning for a parent. And that's something that we all have to do at some time. Yes. And so I thought that your story, remembering what has been forgotten, would be very relevant to our readers. Now, I know you've helped thousands of people deal with the loss of family members, and you've presided over more than a thousand funerals, but it's a little different when it happens to you. And I want to talk to you about how your father's death affected you and how it changed your thinking about everything you thought you knew about life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amy, I've always joked I want to write a book called How to Have Your Second Child First, because it seems so much easier the second time around. But of course, you can't write that book because there are certain things that can only be lived by experiencing them directly and not vicariously. And that's what happened to me when my father died after a 10-year journey through Alzheimer's. Despite the fact that I had spent 35 years helping, as you pointed out, more than 1,000 families through this journey of letting go and grief and loss, 
and thought I was doing a pretty good job and thought I knew something about it, my father died and then I realized that so much of what I had been thinking and teaching and doing to help people, while not useless, was also not exactly the truth and not exactly right. And that there's this old Yiddish phrase I love, which is, a half-truth is a whole lie. And I was operating with half-truths because my experience with death was vicarious. And then my father died, and it inspired me, forced me, compelled me, taught me where I went wrong when it comes to certain aspects of, of grief and loss. And, and by the way, loss of all kinds, not just death. And we can go through them if you'd like, but it, it was a major reassessment for me. Well, what were some of the key lessons that you learned that maybe somebody could benefit from even though they haven't gone through right. yeah. one of these close deaths themselves? Well, the first thing, and these are in no particular order, but the first one that comes to mind, and I wrote about it for your beautiful 30th anniversary volume, is the duality of memory. You know, clergy are full of platitudes. Our culture is full of platitudes about memory. You know, may her memory be a blessing. You'll always have your memories. You'll live on in your memories. And all of which is true. Memory is very beautiful. But it also is incredibly painful. And it can be both at the same time. In the book, The Beauty of What Remains, where I write about this, the duality of memory, I compare it to being caressed and spat on at the same time. So there's a duality to memory. And we do ourselves a disservice when we don't recognize that duality and embrace the kind of sweet and sour dynamic tension mm -hmm. that is memory. So that's the first. You're totally right. It's sweet and sour. That's, yeah. a, that's a perfect way of yeah. talking about it. And, and people are disappointed when they discover it. So to your point, Amy, maybe knowing it in advance will help. The second thing, is about the nonlinear nature of grief. So I'm 60, almost 63 years old. And I was raised, I was the first generation raised under the teachings of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross about death and dying and grief and loss. And she categorized it, identified it, mapped it as having stages, the five stages to grief, the five stages to death and dying. And it implies that Grief is a linear process. First you feel A, then B, then C, then D, then E, and then you're done. As if grief is like some kind of rash that clears up every day until it's gone. And that is just not the case. I have found that grief is entirely nonlinear. That when it comes to grief, the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line. It's a very erratic, wavy kind of line. And I like the metaphor of waves for grief because they do come very close together and they crash down on you at first and then they do grow further apart and they do give you some relief. You do learn to even play in the waves. Sometimes you can go for days, weeks, months, years with beautiful calm seas and then your back is turned and a massive rogue wave of grief can just take you down. I totally agree with you. My mother died six years ago, and my father died six months ago. And yeah, you do get fun memories. The memories are painful or 
just affirming, but also the waves of grief were all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, I really want my mother, but it's been six years, but most of the time I'm doing fine. Yes, right. And you know, here's the thing where it changed my life. Before my father died, I was the kind of person who, when facing a wave, no matter how massive, a wave of sadness, a wave of work, a wave of anxiety, a wave of problems with one of my kids, whatever wave I was facing, my default setting was to plant my feet in the sand, stick my chest out, and take it. Because I, of course, was stronger than any wave. And then my father dies. And I realized that when you try to stand up to that kind of wave of grief and loss, you end up thrown upside down, gasping for air, and thrown against the rocks. So the better way, I've changed my default setting now when waves start coming, which is, I know now, the better way is to lie down and let it wash over you and then stand up when you can. Okay, so you used to be in Chicago, so you know about driving on ice, but this is yes. like this is like when the ice starts to take your car, don't hit the brakes, just let it take you where it's going to take you. And then when you can grab on again, when you sense that the tires can grab on again, then you actually try to regain control. But that's really what you've just described. Well, in a way, and including the don't panic part, right? And here's the difference, though, with grief, Amy. I think it's a significant difference. When you're floating in it, you can reach your hand out. And very often, there'll be someone standing next to you to reach back and help lift you from that suffering. And grief taught me the helper to reach out for help. And that's been a very powerful, liberating lesson of my life. So who should people reach out to for the help? Is it a family member? Is it a therapist? Does it depend on the person? It depends on the person and the circumstance. But I would tell you that People who remember and who care are the only people who matter when you're grieving. And people who mind your grieving don't matter. And the people who matter don't mind. Mm -hmm. So reach out to people who matter and don't mind. And yes, professional help when it's warranted. But it's warranted less than people think because they're still operating under this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way to grieve. And there isn't. There's no wrong way to grieve. And there's only one expert in your grief, and that's you. Yeah. You're on your journey. You have all this new expertise, but you're never going to lose your father again. No. And I keep discovering him in so many beautiful ways. And honestly, because my relationship with my father was also filled with dichotomous tension and dissonance and, and these dualities of life. He was not an easy person for any of us. Time has also kind of softened his rough edges in my heart and my soul. I can still remember them. I wouldn't say it's softened in my mind, but softened in my heart. And in a sense, in a way, my relationship with my father is more beautiful now than it was before. And I'll take the win. Yeah. Did you find that the dementia softened him? Because I found with my father, it was like the dementia stripped this hard shell off him. And underneath it was this nice, soft, gentle guy. But yes. you know, it took the dementia to take that hard shell off him. 
Yes, and in my father's case, to reduce his profound anxiety that he lived with his whole life. So yes, it did. And what it leaves behind, that's why I called this book The Beauty of What Remains. It leaves behind a person's core essence, which in my father's case was just a sweet man who smiled whenever anyone walked into the room and recognized him and engaged with him. We're going to take a quick break for an ad, and then we're going to come back and keep going on this conversation. We're back with Rabbi Steve Later, and I want to talk about what you've learned from your father's death and what you convey in your book, The Beauty of What Remains. So let's go back to what we were talking about with the nonlinear nature of grief and the duality of memory. And also, I know you talk in the book about how time is so precious. And what I want to know is all of the advice you give in the book, but also, I want to know what can we do to prepare ourselves before a death? And often we know that that person's death is coming. So how do we prepare for that? Well, there's a time in life, frankly, when denial of death is our default and appropriate setting. When you're younger, in your 30s, 40s, etc., we're at the height of ambition and striving and then we start to have friends and family die. Obviously, there are exceptions to this. There are many children who suffer grief, but the way to be prepared, I think, is manyfold. First of all, as little unfinished business as possible between people always makes it easier. Secondly, know your loved one's story. My most recent book is called For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. The only way you can leave the legacy of your values and life lessons to the people you love when you're gone is if you share them. You know, I never knew, Amy, my last conversation with my dad was my last conversation with my dad. You never know. So don't wait. Ask the questions. Have the conversations. Here's what I want you to remember. Here's my blessing for you. Here's what I want my epitaph to be. Here are my biggest failures and what I've learned. Here's what I think love is. Here's what I think it means to be a good person. Here's when I think you need to stand up for yourself and cut toxicity, including people, out of your life. Here's my greatest regret. Learn from it. Have those conversations. And I even urge people to write those answers down to these profound questions. Because at the end of the day, the most precious inheritance we can give to our loved ones has nothing to do with the material world. It's always struck me as so sad that the final word, the final word that most people leave for their loved ones when they're gone is a mostly boilerplate legalese document written by someone who barely knew them. And it's completely about who gets what and when and how much. It's all about the crap that, frankly, nobody wants. That's a good point. That's a very good point. You don't want your legacy to be your will. Sure, you have to have a will, but yeah, help that elderly parent to give you a different kind of legacy. That's right. And, and I can see why your new book is so important. That makes total sense about 12 essential questions to tell a life story. It's a very good idea. Yep. 
Yep, because we are our story, ultimately. The world is not made up of atoms. There's a poet, Muriel Ruckheiser, who said, the world is not made up of atoms, it's made up of stories. And it's true. Ultimately, each person is a story. But the story will never be known if it isn't told. Well, I love that, that the world is really made up of stories, because, of course, that's what I have devoted myself to for 15 years. Yep. Sharing those stories that that's make right. up the world. And, and that's why you're a success, and that's why Chicken Soup is a success, because it creates worlds out of stories. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, we are out of time, but this has been so great. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I think that everybody should be looking for your new book about 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. What's the title of that book? The title is For You When I Am Gone. For you and I am gone. Okay. And then, of, of course... The, the beauty of what remains. The beauty yes. of what remains. Yeah. yeah. You've yeah. written so many books. I'm looking at this. Which is which? Let me just say, in closing, I'm very proud to be a part of the Chicken Soup for the Soul family. I, I'm in two volumes now, and I consider it, honestly, two of my most proud achievements. It's well, iconic. We're happy. We're so happy that you honored us with two pieces in our books. Anyway, thank you for joining us today. And of course, our listeners can find your books on Amazon and they can learn more about you at stevelader.com. It's Steve and then L-E-D-E-R.com. I'm Amy Newmark. Thanks for listening today. Please join me next time for a much lighter topic, a look at five ways to find the miracle of love from our summer beach read, Chicken Soup for the Soul, All You Need is Love. Steve, thank you. You are so welcome, Amy.